This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. During wartime, food shortages and rationing preoccupied most people. But the hunger suffered by prisoners of war was on a whole different level. But what's surprising to learn is that prisoners of war often found that talking about food seemed to help. This edition of the History Listen comes in two helpings. First, a story close to home from a Japanese prison camp on the island of Borneo in 1942, that of Australian POW Ron Foster. As he and his inmates survived on a starvation diet, he was secretly adding recipes to his dream cookbook. Brett Evans visits Neil Foster, Ron's son, to hear the story. Neil Foster likes to cook. Today, he's making me lunch using an old family recipe. All right, so what I'm doing today, Brett, is a, an adaptation of Puyong Hoi. It's something his late father, Ron Foster, taught him to cook when he was a teenager. But it's pretty simple. Essentially, it's just a, a crab omelette. The recipe itself might not be complicated, but the story of how it ended up in Neil Foster's culinary repertoire is far from ordinary. But it's pretty much a standard sort of Thai, Malay dish using crab or lobster, as the recipe says. Onions and a bit of chilli. So we'll see how we go. This simple family meal originated decades earlier, during one of the darkest chapters in Australian history. In February 1942, Neil's father, Lieutenant Ron Foster of the 8th Division Signals, along with 15,000 other Australian soldiers, was captured at Singapore. He then spent the rest of the war as a prisoner of the Japanese. Unlike many others, Ron Foster made it home. He married, started a family, kept up with his old army mates, and sometimes he'd get down his box of wartime mementos, his medals, his discharge papers, and he'd fish out a small, handmade book of recipes he'd made when he was a POW so he and his teenage son, Neil, could cook something together. Later in life, I actually cooked a couple of those meals. And I often thought, you know, I was only a 14-year-old at the time, I thought, what sort of things are going through my father's mind as I'm preparing this food? Yeah, what sort of memories does that invoke, that here's his son cooking this stuff for him? You know, he was very silent, I remember. So he must have been reflecting on that circumstance you know, where he was putting those notes together in that book. Though just the size of a cigarette packet, Ron Foster's POW recipe book is a magnificent artefact. It was obviously made to last. It was bound in a sheet's metal and tied with wire, and there were canvas eyelets on each page, and each recipe was scrupulously written out in detail. Very hard to read in some cases now. There's, you know, rust has made its mark on some of the papers, but it's still quite legible in many cases. There are recipes for pâté de foie gras and beef curry and chicken loaf, for banana crush and date pie and coconut ice cream. And of course, there's a recipe for an Asian-inspired omelette called Pu Yong Hoi. 
Originally imprisoned in Singapore's notorious Changi, Ron Foster was then transferred along with over 2,000 other POWs to Sandakan on the island of Borneo. Their job was to build a Japanese airstrip. A group of Australian prisoners at Sandakan then began secretly working with the local underground movement. They acquired parts to build a radio and gathered intelligence against their Japanese captors. The officer in charge of the clandestine operation was Captain Lionel Matthews. And before long, Ron was helping him. Yeah, a lot of what Captain Matthews did was sort of kept very quiet. And so it wasn't common knowledge to most of the men there. But there were a number of officers who were lookouts. You know, they used to go out on wood collecting trips or jobs outside the camp. So they were often used to smuggle bits and pieces or keep a lookout, you know, just to make sure that the Japanese guards weren't watching and when certain things were handed over. On one hair-raising occasion, Ron and his friend, fellow signals officer Ross Ewan, helped Matthews to smuggle a revolver into the camp. Though it was their duty as soldiers to resist the Japanese, Sandakan's covert intelligence operation was stunningly brave. Well, it was, and it's also amazing that it actually happened. I'm, you sometimes wonder whether they really knew the danger that they could have been in, you know, when the Japanese found out, which they did eventually. They didn't find out about the arms and things. It was mainly the radio that they found. Historian Michelle Cunningham. She interviewed many of the Australian officers imprisoned along with Ron Foster, including her own father, Tom Early. When the activities of Lionel Matthews were discovered, he and eight local conspirators were tortured and executed. One of the worst things I remember Russ Ewan telling me that, you know, because he had been close to Matthews and fortunately was never betrayed, he had been working with him in getting messages in and out of the camp. And he said, uh, you know, he just remembers when they were carrying the coffin to the graveyard, there was blood coming, you know, dripping from the coffin. After uncovering these acts of organised defiance, the Japanese decided to separate the Australian officers from their men. So in October 1943, Ron Foster and about 140 of his fellow officers were moved from Sandakan to Kuching on the other side of Borneo. They didn't know it at the time that their chances of surviving the war had just improved. Life in the new camp was slightly easier than at Sandakan. As officers, they were not expected to work, but they still faced many of the same enemies as before. Bashings from the guards, the threat of disease, a lack of adequate food, and morale-sapping boredom. To combat the boredom, the men entertained and educated themselves. So they formed a choir of about 40 or 50 men, there's another group formed a sextet, and so they used to sing and perform for the other officers. And then also they had people who used to write plays or they'd perform some of Shakespeare's plays and draw. They had some good artists there, so they drew these wonderful advertising posters which they put up to advertise what the next show was. And I know my father was, because of his practical side of him, he used to make a lot of the props. 
he told me once that he made a telephone. He'd carved a telephone out of a piece of wood and that was used in one of his productions. A number of the officers were well-educated. Some were either lawyers or studying law, accountants, priests, teachers, uh, all sorts of people. Some of them used to sort of they'd share knowledge. They'd say, look, I'd really like to know something about real estate or I'd really like to know something about farming. In effect, the Australian camp in Kuching became a sort of barbed wire university. Sustenance for the soul was one thing, but above all else was the overwhelming need for physical sustenance, for food. Michelle Cunningham remembers being told a story that has stayed with her. One of the men said that after the war, I think it was, I think it was a woman friend of his asked him, what did you do for sex during, <laughs> during the war when you were in POW camp? And he said, sex? He said, Venus herself could have walked through the camp in the nutty and we'd have all said to her, can you cook? Have you got some food? <laughs> the men became increasingly preoccupied with food. People would sit around and talk about delicious recipes and their mum's favourite or, a, you know, a special cake they liked or whatever. And I thought, wouldn't that make you feel worse? Wouldn't it make you feel more hungry? But it was just amazing how many of them, they said, oh, no, you know, and they'd sort of think, now, when I get home, that's the first thing I'm going to ask mum to make, you know, can we share the recipe? You know, I just found it quite amazing. But it's, it's incredible how many of the men did collect those recipes. Neil Foster has a similar view. Can you imagine, you know, eating on a little bit of dried rice and a little bit of fish maybe or some herbs to think about roast turkey or roast leg of lamb that your mother might have cooked for you before you went off to war. And so they used to compile recipe books. For Neil, his father's handmade recipe book was part of a broader survival strategy. People can spend time together, even in the most hostile and reverse conditions, in pain and suffering and hunger, and it can sort of build this rapport and it's basically say brotherhood between these people and that they can think of home and just imagine themselves eating these sorts of foods. <laughs> I think because food is wonderful, the elixir of life and all that kind of stuff. So it would have kept them going. And I think that's really good for the human spirit. Yeah, that's something that tells a lot about people. With the distraction of concerts, classes and recipes, the Australian prisoners in Kuching kept their sanity. But as the war turned against Japan, it was harder for supplies to get through and conditions in the camp deteriorated. By early 1945, the concerts had ceased. The men were lethargic, stricken by disease and wasting away. The comradeship of the prisoners began to falter. In July 1945, a small group of men persuaded the camp cooks to supply them with extra food. When they were discovered, because everybody in the camp was just really angry about it, anyway, they sent them all to Coventry and the fellows that told me about it said they must have been completely going off their heads by this stage. But anyway, they sent these poor guys to Coventry and one of them was so distraught at the realisation of what he'd done and the fact that, you know, now he was being shunned by his fellow officers that he stopped eating altogether and he turned his face to the wall and just died overnight a couple of days later. Fellow citizens, the war is 
government has accepted the terms of surrender. In the days after the Japanese surrender, in August 1945, the biscuit bombers arrived. Allied aircraft dropped supplies to the starving men. Soon after, the Australian officers held at Kuching were liberated. A hospital ship, the HMAS Wanganella, came to take them home. On board, there were clean sheets, flush toilets, pretty nurses, <laughs> and of course, plenty of food. Here's the menu from that last meal on board. Dinner, roast haunch of mutton, corn silver side of beef and carrots, cabbage and roast potatoes, apple tart and custard, fruit and cheddar cheese. It was Ron Foster's recipe book come to mouth-watering life. But what of the men kept at Sandakan by the Japanese? The Kuching officers were on their way back to Australia when the news came through. Except the six survivors, all 2,400 prisoners had perished, many on the infamous Sandakan death marches. The surviving officers were hit hard. The thought that they were all gone was just mind-blowing, devastating for them. A lot of the officers felt guilty about the fact that they had survived and their men hadn't. So, you know, they didn't sort of want to be made a big fuss of. When the troops are heading back for good old Aussie and we march down Martin's place in our victory parade. For the returning POWs, the war had changed their relationship to food forever. Michelle Cunningham remembers a story the wife of Kenneth, one of her dad's mates, once told her. And she said she'd go to visit Ken in the hospital and she'd open his drawer of the bedside table to get something out and he'd have sandwiches, old sandwiches, you know, stuffed in there. And he'd have all these bits of food and she'd say to the nurse, oh, my God, you know, she said, uh, he'd say, leave it there, leave it there. And she said to the nurse, oh, you know, this is terrible. He's got all this food stuffed in his drawer. And the nurse said to her, don't worry, she said, we know. She said, nearly all POWs that come in here, they're exactly the same. From what I could see and what I can remember, you lived through that and survived it and uh, somehow you know, raised his three sons and was a great father and great husband and you know, somehow got through it all. And came home to teach you how to cook this. Yeah, I'll better focus here, otherwise it'll be burnt. After the war, like a lot of former POWs, Ron Foster was not enamoured, to say the least, with his former Japanese hosts. But over time, his views mellowed. Neil's mother, Esmeralda, had been a keen amateur potter. After she passed away, Ron took up his late wife's hobby. Eventually, he became fascinated with Japanese ceramics and visited the home of his long-ago captors to meet and study with Japanese pottery masters. Ron Foster died in 1980. Neil's work in the kitchen is done and lunch is served. So thank you very much for this. It's really nice. A um, little taste of Malaya here in the central coast of New South Wales. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for having me along. Um, just to share the stories, I just thought uh, the, the book that my father compiled was worthy of sharing and some of the recipes. A few years ago, the Foster family donated Ron's recipe book to the Australian War Memorial. So Neil's had to cook our meal today entirely from memory. I've studied the book 
and I've indelibly burned it into my head. <laughs> but I can remember, you know, this Poo Yong Hoi, you know, it stuck with me. What was I, 14 at the time? I'm now getting on 62 and it's sort of stuck there. Recipe for Survival was written and recorded by Brett Evans. The producer was Ros Blewett, with sound design by Russell Stapleton. You're with a History Listen, and today we're hearing about hunger during wartime and the lengths starving prisoners went to to satisfy their cravings. Our second story happened on the other side of the world in the closing months of World War II. Imprisoned in Germany's Ravensbrück concentration camp, a small group of women used their imagination, took a risk and created something remarkable. Stuffed tomatoes. Tomato pudding. Special beef steak. Hors d'oeuvres. Bacon strudel. Hunter's pie. Breakfast pate. Austrian torn. Alsatian, Alsatian apple, apple cake. cake. Creme Vladimir. Chocolate balls. Apple sausage. Turkish honey. Serbian Today we hear the story behind these mouth-watering dishes, told through three women. Rosalind Sugarman. I'm the head curator at the Sydney Jewish Museum. So what I want to show you is Edith Pierce's Ravensbrück cookbook. We also hear a rare archive of Edith herself, recorded when she was 82 years old. I was adamant that I am going to survive. I had no idea how to make a scrambled egg, so I thought that would give me a good starting point in life. And Sydney cook Lisa Goldberg, who collects recipes from the Jewish community and will attempt to recreate some from the Ravensbrook cookbook. Apple sausage. Turkish honey. Yes, I think we can make this. I would like to try the Turkish honey because it sounds interesting and I've never seen anything like it before. So you're cooking honey and milk together and it becomes thick. Yeah, I think that's a definite. We're going to do that. But before we head to the kitchen with Lisa, Rosalind takes us back to 1914. Edith Pierce was born in 1914 in Zagreb. What happened is her mum died and she was taken into the care of her grandmother. And growing up, she was sent between Yugoslavia and Hungary. Around about the late 1930s, she was living in Yugoslavia. She went to Hungary for an engagement party. And at that time, Germany invaded Yugoslavia and she couldn't go back. So she is now in Hungary, and if we fast track to 1944, when the Germans do invade Hungary, she's one day walking in the streets and only has a handbag on her, and she's rounded up together with many other Jews, and ultimately the roundup takes her to Auschwitz. And late 1944, she was taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was a camp for women. At the time I arrived there, there were 40,000 prisoners and there wasn't even place to move. The food was terrible, uh, probably even worse than in Auschwitz. And there were a tremendous amount of dead people every day. And then one day... Word got out that she could speak German. And this is actually what saves her life. The Germans needed someone to work as a secretary in the Siemens factory, which was a factory quite close to Ravensbrück. I was just fortunate to be selected to go to the Siemens lager, which was just next to Ravensbrück. We finally go to work. 
And so she got an office job. Now here's where it becomes important for the, the cookbook. She had access to much better working conditions and she also had access to some materials. She stole some paper and she stole a pencil. And she brought those back with her to the camp. Yes, I stole that and it was under my pillow. <laughs> In spare time, on a day that they weren't working, her and the other prison inmates, other women, would sit around in a circle. Once a week, Sunday was free time. We sat together and we talked about food. These women were eating with words. Cakes. Copenhagen cake. Sand cake. Bund cake. Wedding cake. Strawberry rice. There's a preponderance of desserts and cakes. Of course, I'm drawn to the sweet straight away. And so I'm trying to imagine what they might have been thinking. So the first thing I've picked is called a sand cake. Who knows what it's meant to be, but it just looks like a butter cake. Around 132,000 women were imprisoned in the camp during the years 1939 to 1945 from 23 different countries which is why their different um, languages and different cuisines reflected in the book. Czech, Hungarian, Polish, and so on. They all communicating through the language of food. And Edith got this idea to record some of the recipes that they spoke about. And one of the reasons why they're talking about food is actually because they're starving. And there's an obsession with food, with hunger, because the rations are so little. Just looking at this recipe, it's breakfast pate, and it just says white bread, gruyere cheese, grated cheese and butter. And already my mouth's watering because I can think about, you know, the bread's going to be toasted and golden, the butter's melting into it, the cheese is, you know, stringy and melty. And imagine for a minute these women who are in these horrible, bleak places, leaving that place for a minute in their mind. The barracks were equipped with three-tier bunks. Everybody had their own bunk, straw pillow and uh, straw mattress. It was regimented. When you open the book, what you're looking at are hand-cut pieces of paper that have been stapled together with a piece of wire, um, round about 56 pages, on which in handwritten in different people's handwritings are roughly 97 recipes. So the one recipe follows the next. There's almost no spare space. They've been homemakers, they've been cooks, they know a pinch of this, a cup of that, a handful of that. But what you get is this amazing sense of, of a richness of hearty European meals. And it seems as if it in some ways, um, kind of metaphorically you could say, fills their belly. But it also serves this purpose of giving them hope for the future. That was our fantasy cooking behind barbed wire, which fills up your belly. It was not just a, a very light meal, you know. They must have been very, very heavy meals to satisfy our palate. Skin the potatoes and prepare a dough from mashed potatoes, flour and water. Prepare mince meat with egg and seasoning. 
Roll out dough into a thin layer and cut into wide strips. Cover strips with meat mixture and roll up. Secure and fry them in hot oil, yes. Sort of like a weird sausage roll in a way. <laughs> Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Macaroni with liver. Serbian gulash. Transylvanian cabbage. Styrian noodles. Bacon strudel. So I'm going to put this in the oven now. I'm just guessing 180. There are so many different recipes with so many tiny nuances that reflect where they've come from or who made it. A few of the recipes, like Hunter's pie, contained bacon. These were obviously given by non-Jewish inmates. And as Edith herself recalls, even women from very orthodox backgrounds were happily participating in our fantasy gluttony. This is what she says in her testimony. Because hunger of such dimension doesn't observe religious dietary laws. And nobody cared what kind of food you would have as long as it gives you some relief from the nagging hunger pains. So again, I'm going to put it in at 180 and um, we'll look at it in, in half an hour. Hey Siri, set the timer for 30 minutes. So you could look at this Ravensbrück cookbook as an act of resistance. If you were caught doing this, you did put yourself at risk. Okay, so we can cut open this cake now. I feel like we're cutting into history. It's extraordinary to be cutting this cake. Feels quite good. Looks quite good, look at that. Maybe it's called a sound cake because it is so yellow. Tastes good. Nicely, but I do love that we've brought these people back into the kitchen, that we're talking about them again and again honouring their memory by doing that. So I'm really conscious of where they've come from, who wrote them and in what circumstances they were written. Edith actually published a little booklet in 1986. This is Edith Pierre herself writing about it. Read it out loud, it's really interesting. It was bitterly cold, our spirits and bodies broken. We shivered not only, because, shivered of not only because of lack of proper clothing, but because of our empty stomachs. We were desperately hungry. There was nothing to warm our emaciated bodies after the infamous roll call twice a day. So we started to talk about glorious food, food that was served around the family table during better times. I was able to gather some paper and pencil and ask my fellow inmates to write down their recipes in the hope that if the unbelievable miracle of freedom ever eventuated, I would be able to feed my feeble body with these gourmet dishes. Looking back now, I think that our preoccupation with these recipes reflects the degree to which civilised people had been degraded by an inhumane system and the solace we found in our fantasy dishes. Feast of the Imagination was produced by Sarah Mashman, supervising producer Ros Blewett and sound designer Russell Stapleton. You heard the voices of Edith Peer. Since I worked in the office, I was always on the day shift. The night shift got an extra slice of bread from Siemens. Lisa Goldberg from the Monday Morning Cooking Club. Now that we've seen this, we have an obligation to take these and bring these people back to life again through the recipes. And Sydney Jewish Museum curator, Rosalind Sugarman. For this tiny little book that fits into the palm of your hands, it would be something that would not only nourish your soul, 
but give you the resilience to go on. I'm Rebecca Huntley. This is the History Listen. Thanks for joining me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.